You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guests this week are Katie Barnett and Jeremy Gans. Jeremy is a professor at Melbourne Law School, um, where he researches and teaches the criminal justice system. His uh, early research was on fact-finding in sexual assault trials, and um, he has written a number of articles on criminal investigation, especially uh, DNA identification techniques. And he is the author of a criminal law treatise and a co-author of texts on evidence law and criminal process rights. And Katie Barnett um, is also a professor of law at, at the University of Melbourne. She's the author of the young adult novel, The Earth Below, and the co-author of Remedies in Australian Private Law. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, today I would like to talk to them both about their joint co-authored book, Guilty Pigs, The Weird and Wonderful History of Animal Law. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Iona. It's really wonderful to be here and to be talking to you today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the discussion, Ida. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you, Jeremy. Um, Katie has previously written an article for ARIO, which we'll link to in the show notes. And um, also, I've been following with great interest your, um, um, your adventures in walking, Katie. Maybe you could say something briefly about that before we begin, so, just because I think a lot of people will be interested. So um, I was born at 29 weeks and I've had cerebral palsy since birth and I had a lot of difficulty walking. And a couple of years ago, I ended up getting um, treatment, which has helped me walk almost normally. I'm not quite up to dancing like Iona yet, but... um, I don't think I'm that far off. So it's just been quite amazing because I own I think I showed some videos of how I was walking and now I'm moving a lot yeah. more normally. Yeah, ama- uh, it, amazing. Um, so I, I've, I'm very familiar with the kind of classic gait that people with cerebral palsy have, um, often uh, walking on your toes or with bent knees, putting a lot of strain on, on, uh, calf muscles and on your hips and things. Um, so it's really extraordinary and fantastic to see you um, learning to walk in a relaxed and easy, easy way, which is very difficult when you have uh, muscle spasticity. 
Yeah, it's been amazing, really, and it's much less painful, so that's great too. Could I just say Fantastic. that? Um, could I just say that it's amazing working with Katie because, uh, despite all of that, um, Katie is uh, the most prolific academic writer I'm aware of, uh, and none of that diminishes her quality. I've co-written quite a few books, and I'm almost always the one who finishes first and in, and waits for the others to submit their chapters. With Katie, it was the exact opposite. Uh, Katie was way ahead of me and I was the, the slow coach trying to keep up with her. It's been such an amazing experience. Yes, we had a lot of fun. I think this book is what I always imagined academia would be like, to be honest. It's just been a fantastic experience. That's great. Um, so I think we wanted to start by... by um, reading a couple of sample paragraphs, uh, passages from, short passages from the book. And um, I know you've each chosen one. Um, Katie, would you like to start? Yes, I'll start. It's a little bit of a um, grotesque one, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but it will Good. give you a clue as to the title of the book. So, in 1386... The Tribunal of Falaise in France sentenced a criminal defendant to death for murdering a child. Before her execution, the defendant was dressed in new clothes and to reflect the injuries she had inflicted on the child, her head and legs were wounded. She was then hanged before a crowd. What was so remarkable about this tragic case? The defendant was a female pig, tried and found guilty as if she were human. The event was so memorable that the Church of Sainte Trinité in Falaise once featured a fresco of the execution, although it was painted over in 1820. But while the trial was considered unusual by the residents of Falaise, prosecutions against animals have in fact been reported all over the world including in Europe, India, Southeast Asia, New Zealand and Africa. In this chapter, we look at how sometimes we punish or blame animals personally for their behaviour. The way we treat animals for harming or killing humans is revealing. It shows us something about the human psyche, our rationalisations for punishing criminal behaviour and how the law reflects our biases and beliefs. Thank you. Jeremy? All right. Well, my example is from, uh, also from uh, the other side of the world, from Australia, but also a distant area to medieval Europe. Uh, but it concerns a, a case a century ago uh, in Washington, D.C. Keely Moore, the owner of a hat shop, emerged from the store one day to find a woman petting his dog, Prince, and claiming the dog was hers. After he told her that he had purchased Prince from a peddler in New York City, he was threatened with arrest and eventually sued by the woman's father, Eli Helmick, the Inspector General of the US Army. Helmick insisted that Prince was actually Buddy, a dog he had bought from Kansas years earlier and which was stolen from him four months ago. Faced with the testimonies of Helmick, his wife and daughter, backed up by a photo of the daughter and Buddy, Moore gathered a formidable array of witnesses to defend his claim to Prince. These included four customers who had seen Prince at the hat shop before Buddy was stolen, and a vet who testified that Prince was a mongrel, 
rather than Helmick's prize-winning Samoyed. When King Solomon faced a similar dispute of a human baby, he threatened to kill it as a ruse to make the parties reveal their true relationship to the child. Solomon wisely awarded the baby to the woman who immediately dropped her claim in order to save the baby's life. Judge Edward Kimball saw a different, less alarming, and perhaps more reliable way to make use of the object of the dispute before him. A Washington newspaper gave the following summary of events in the courtroom. And now call the dog, his honour commanded the court officer. The animal had been held in confinement in Judge Kimball's private room while the testimony was being taken in the courtroom. In another moment, the court officer returned, leading the dog by the collar. Officer and animal approached the witness stand and suddenly the dog's ears rose and his nostrils quivered as he evidently caught a scent which was familiar and grateful to his keen senses. With a turn of his head and a swish of his tail, the animal bounded to the chair where Mrs. Helmick sat and, raising his forepaws to her knees, pressed his nose to her cheek and licked it while the delighted animal continued to wag his tail with enthusiastic joy. Kimball immediately awarded the dog to Helmick, pronouncing the evidence unequivocal. As can be seen from this example, the dog was very much used by Kimball. On the other hand, this was not just for the human's benefit, but also for the dog's, assuming, as seems clear, he wanted to be reunited with his true owner. That's such an uplifting little story. Um, I I was wondering um, how it was that you, the two of you, decided to work together on this book, and what the initial, uh, what was the initial, uh, what initially sparked your interest? Um, which of you was it who came up with this topic, or was it something you discussed and and came up with together, and what was it that first that first sparked interest in this? So, um, Jeremy and I are joint editors of a blog regarding the High Court of Australia. And there was a case before the High Court of Australia, which we actually detail in Chapter 1, involving the question of whether a dog um, should be, in inverted commas, destroyed for um, an attack it made on other dogs and humans, or allegedly made. And so Jeremy and I were having lunch and discussing this case and talking about how interesting it was that the court didn't really talk about the dog very much in the judgment at all. And then we began to talk about animal cases we knew, which were quite a few, and I said, Jeremy, I think we should write a book about this. And Jeremy said, okay, and me being me, um, I went off and put together a list of chapters we might write and um, began to write one of the chapters <laughs> um, because I am a little bit, um, yes, uh, when I decide to do something, I'm going to do it. So, um the first publisher we approached was not actually that interested and they said, no, nope, um, we're not at all interested, so we shelved it for a bit. But then later I said something on social media regarding the fact that we'd kind of started to put together this book and that's when um, the publishers of the book approached us, Black Ink and La Trobe University Press, and we're just so glad at the fact that they showed in us and the kind of 
effort that they put into this project. Do you want to add anything, Jeremy? Well, just that, that one of the novel things about this experience for us as academics is we're used to publishing academic books and um, each of us has also published um, semi or, or in Katie's case, fictional books. But um, at least for me, this is the first time uh, we've, I've had a book which I could go to the local bookstore and see in the, in the bookstore as opposed to just being available on the web somewhere. So that's been uh, an extra delight. And part of that process was that um, our publisher, of course, um, was in charge of things or we let them be in charge of things like the title and the cover. And it's got that great look to it while at the same time still being an academic book and having at the end all of the footnotes of the like to show that our research is legitimate. Yes, it's much more readable than most academic books, though. Um, Let me say that for our audience. Um, It's one of my personal bugbears how bad most academic writing Mm. is, and this is good writing. Um, Thank you. Maybe we could start with, so Katie's example um, was um, really the example from which I guess the title of the book is taken, um, the trial of the of the pig who killed a child in a medieval court. And in the book, you talk about uh, a number of other um, trials and um, of animals in the Middle Ages. Um, and I wonder if we could start there and, and look at things uh, chronologically and think about how attitudes towards animals within law have changed and how that has reflected changing attitudes in society. So um, maybe you could uh, start by um, telling listeners about how uh, medieval courts regarded um how they prosecuted and how they regarded cases involving animals. So um, it's actually really interesting. It was primarily, it began in a particular area of France, northern France, around Normandy and Champagne. And at first, this phenomenon mainly involved pigs. Um Unfortunately, so in early medieval times, there weren't so many of these cases, I think because pigs were more likely to be going and foraging in the forest. But once there was greater urbanisation, it's really the late medieval period to early modern period that we get these trials of animals. I think because animals and humans were more um, close together. But what happened in these trials was that The French courts and then later sometimes German, Swiss, so on and so forth, courts um, tried the defendant as if they were human, as in that um, extract that I talked about, with all the things that they would do for a human in a in a criminal trial. So the person, the animal will be put in jail. Sometimes it is said that they sought confessions from the animals. Jeremy and I are still wondering exactly how this worked. Um, Then they put the animal in the dock. There's a startling picture, which we reproduce in the book, of a mother pig standing crying with the baby pigs around her in the dock. And apparently the animals were judged on how well they behaved in the witness box. And then they would be judged 
Often they were judged guilty, and if so, they would be executed, but sometimes they were exonerated. So, for example, in the instance of the piglets, it was decided that the piglets were too young to know what they were doing. And insofar as... (laughs) Insofar as they'd been guilty, it was that they were led into badness by their mother and uh, they were exonerated, but the original owner didn't want them back, so the local um, the local noble woman got the piglets instead. Interestingly, this isn't how it was in England. So in England, animals were categorised as more of a thing. And there was this law called the Law of Deodans, where a thing which harmed someone was actually forfeited originally to the church, but then later to the king or the queen, and you had to pay a fee. And so the things which were deodanded included carts, ropes, buckets, mills, millstones, cartwheels but also pigs and horses. But very interestingly, English law put animals in the category of thing. However, um, the notion of thing was that somehow things were in some way blameworthy. And actually, if they'd hurt someone or killed someone, they were tainted. So you couldn't touch them again. You had to forfeit them and um, the crown might sell them off. So, actually, there were different conceptions of animals. Here we have the French on the one hand, later some German courts and so on and so forth, treating animals as equivalent to humans. And then on the other hand, we have English courts treating animals as things, but as a kind of almost an animate thing. And when you read the English cases, you think, well, that's that's ridiculous. And then you remember the time that you might have hit your printer and said, you bad printer, why weren't you printing for me? <laughs> and then you realise maybe we're not so far from that after all. But in terms of how we treat animals, I think one of the things that Jeremy and I have found is that Throughout history, like some of the book deals with Mesopotamian law, very early laws, throughout history, the law has not been sure how to handle animals at all. And that continues to the current day. So at some points, the law treats animals like people, as with the French courts and the murderous pigs. And at other points, the law treats animals like a piece of property like a pen or a book or a car, just something which has no individuality or life of its own. And actually quite a few of the the chapter on ownership of animals really um, brings that out, that they're just treated as inanimate. So I suppose the consistent thing is that the law cannot decide and maybe we can't decide. I'm not quite sure. Mm, yeah, it's hard for me to imagine how they, how the court case, how, for example, that court case of the pig would have actually been conducted. I mean, how did they cross-examine the pig? Um, so there is actually reports of, you know, on one occasion, I mean, this is 
bit grotesque, but they prosecuted a donkey for being involved in bestiality, and the donkey was very well behaved and quiet. And they decided that the donkey must have been coerced into it and it wasn't her fault. And the local priest gave um, a character reference for the donkey. But (laughs) I have no idea. Like, it is just really, really bizarre. It's Like, did they still go through with the whole cross-examining or it, it seems that they did and how did they rationalize this but then the other interesting thing is again we may not be so far from that because one of the things I found in researching the book is um, that there's been research done to show that when animals um are involved in a moral event, either something very positive or very negative, we tend to see them as people. So if an animal does something exceptionally brave, you've heard of animals, there's a pigeon, a carrier pigeon, who got a medal in World War I for bravery um, from the French army. Um, on the other hand, if an animal kills a child, it seems to provoke a particular response in us. And in this particular study done by a lawyer and a psychologist, Goodwin and Ben Ferrado, um, what they found was that if the animal killed someone like a pedophile, people didn't care. But if the animal killed a child, people became suddenly vengeful or if it killed a homeless man, or something like that. People became quite vengeful and retributive and wanted to punish that animal and actually wanted, they didn't mind if pain was inflicted on it. Somehow it made them feel retributive. And so, um, and they actually wanted to punish that animal. Punishing another animal was not good enough. They wanted to punish that animal. And I suppose that's one of the things Jeremy and I were interested in in that case that we talk about in the first chapter, the Isbester case. To what extent was Izzy the dog put on trial herself? She she hardly features at all, but there is a sense Um, in which she is. Jeremy, could you you just outline for people the Isbester case? Um, for listeners, sure. So the 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 facts of the case is that uh, that a family was going shopping on the outskirts of Melbourne in a in a lovely little village uh, at the edge of Melbourne, and they noticed two dogs, two Staffordshire Terriers, running unaccompanied uh, in a nearby park. And then later on, when they were shopping, uh, the two dogs attacked. Um, uh, their own dog, the family's own dog, and another dog that was in the area. They were both little puppies. And uh, in order to, to deal with this, um, the horrified family, including the, the, the oldest member of the family, Jennifer Edward, um, wrestled with one of the dogs and managed to get the dog off their puppy. And in the course of doing so, she cut her finger and later went to a doctor to have the finger looked at. And that's enough to set in, in train a train of events that led to a the High Court of Australia, the, the the top court in Australia, making a decision about whether or not Izzy should live or not. Uh, so uh, in the first chapter, we, we go through how 
so many different bits of the law come into play with a with a case like that. There's tort law, which talks about uh, the possibility that the owner of the dog, Tanya Esbesta, who lived uh, a mile away and uh, from whose yard the dogs had escaped, whether she could be sued for the damage that her dogs did to everyone, not just the finger, but everyone's um, everyone being shocked and stressed and uh, the family having to give their puppy away because it was too scared to go out. Um, but secondly, um, there's the criminal law, which uh, this is the modern-day analogue to those medieval trials. They don't put the dogs on trial anymore. They put the owner on trial. Uh, but it's for a crime, the crime of being the owner of a dog that attacks someone, not the usual criminal law where you have to prove intent or negligence or something like that, but just owning an attacking dog. And so Tanya Isbesta was tried and convicted after a plea bargain uh, for being the owner of that dog uh, that attacked uh, Jennifer Edward. Uh, the dogs had since attacked other people, so uh, there were a number of charges in play. But actually the law that went to the High Court was a third area of law, um, public law, because after the trial was done and the bargain had been struck that uh, Tanya Isbesta would plead guilty but her dog wouldn't be put down by the court, uh, the local council, the local government body, Knox City Council, uh, decided it would inquire into whether the dog that bit Jennifer Edward, Izzy, um, should be put down. Uh, and so they held a hearing, uh, a, a little bit like a criminal trial, but without most of the trappings. Uh, the uh, It was just council members, including the, the original prosecutor who were on the panel. And uh, at one point, Tanya Isbesta was actually sent out, something that can't happen in a criminal trial because the Edwardses and other fam- other people who had been hurt by the dogs wanted to talk without the dog's owner presence. Um, all of that was fine, uh, and the uh, council did decide to destroy Izzy, but then Tanya Isbesta, with the help of some animal rights lawyers, appealed all the way to the high court. And she won on just one point, which was this, if there was going to be a decision by Knox City Council to destroy Izzy, the decision maker couldn't be or couldn't include one of the people who prosecuted Tanya Isbesta in the criminal courts. Uh, They needed a fresh set of eyes rather than a repeat decision because otherwise, although no one questioned the integrity of that officer, it just looked bad. It looked like she might have something against Izzy. it's actually, they looked into it and found that actually the this decision maker had nothing much against dogs. She'd spared many dogs' lives in similar circumstances, but nevertheless, it looked too bad. So the High Court made its decision, which is the one Katie and I discussed uh, that led us to, to do this book, and it ended up saving the dog because they sent it back to Knox City Council for a fresh decision by new people. And importantly by then, Izzy had had a couple of years in the care of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and had behaved really well. So now there were a stack of witnesses saying that uh, despite the original series of attacks, Izzy was a good dog. Um, in the end, though, Tanya Isbesta couldn't keep Izzy um, because the council wanted to c- declare her a dangerous dog and uh, Tanya Isbesta's landlord wouldn't let her keep Izzy in those circumstances. And the dog was ultimately sent to uh, South Australia and then Queensland, two other states, and ended up adopted uh, under a fresh name and with a fresh start, but by a couple who were well aware of the journey that had led there. Do you think, um, so this this case brings up a, a number of ethical points, but 
I think the first and most obvious one to me, and something I'd like to ask you both personally, so both as lawyers, uh, in your legal opinion, what would be justified, and in your kind of personal ethical opinion, under what circumstances, if any, would you, um, is it justifiable to kill a dog? Hmm. So I can, how about I start? So I'll just talk about some of the legal rules sure. to start with. Uh, so different different places have lots of different rules, but um, a phenomenon, at least some places, including our home state of Victoria and New Zealand, and I'm sure other places use this approach, is they use criminal prosecutions of the owner as a way to get at the dog. Um, and so that's in some ways a really protective thing for dogs because criminal prosecutions are high, highly protective protected things. You have to have proof. You what have does have that mean? Hi- sorry, I, I'm sorry. What does protective mean? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So what I mean is protective of, well, the human defendant, but indirectly of the dog in that the prosecution has to prove things beyond reasonable doubt. They have to satisfy rules of evidence. The case isn't brought by some uh, angry person who's trying to get um, uh, to get their medical bills paid or get money for an attack on the dog. It's it's brought by a prosecutor who's just, uh, at least in theory, meant to be acting in the public interest. So it's a high-quality bit of legal procedure, which at the end of the day then allows a decision to be made about whether the dog will live or not. Um, the alternative is to just let local government officials decide these things. And the, and the difference with them, I guess, is that they have to have, have an eye on uh, their constituents, so they're all elected, and none of them want to turn up in the newspaper having given a dog like Izzy a reprieve and then Izzy attacks someone else. And it's that that worry of what's going to happen next that I think animates everyone in this area. Um, I think everyone, unless you're a, a, a dog hater or something like that, um, knows that ultimately there are very few genuinely bad dogs. There are some bad owners and there are some bad circumstances. But at the same time, it's you've got to you've got to think to yourself, you've got to look someone in the eye if they're attacked or hurt or uh and Melbourne's even had cases of children being killed by dogs. Um, you've got to look those people in the eye and say why you made the decision you did. And that's a very hard uh position for a dog to be in. Uh so uh Having a series of procedures gets in the way of that and slows that process down. And in Izzy's case, gave Izzy enough time to prove that if there was a problem, it wasn't Izzy. It was either perhaps Izzy's owner, uh, Tanya Isbesta, I don't know, perhaps the other dog that attacked um, that same day, Jock, who uh, Tanya Isbesta put down, and maybe Izzy wasn't the problem at all. But it took a couple of years and that trip to the high court to allow Izzy to, to kind of prove herself. Even then, um, she still wasn't kept in, in. She was sent to another part of Australia just to just to avoid the prospect that she would return and injure someone locally. Um, and it had a happy ending, but it took a lot of work to get to that point. It's it's um, it's kind of surprises me that the dog was sent to another state, as if that would be. So, if the dog was dangerous. Hmm. Um, uh, I it, it feels like just passing the buck um, uh, to send her to another state, no? Oh, I think that makes I, – I mean, I share your instinct there. I guess there's perhaps an argument 
that getting her well away from her owner and whatever circumstances she was in could make the difference. I in the uh, book we yeah. actually in the book we actually cover another another case where two dogs attacked another. It's not all about attacking dogs, but but there was this one. Um, and oh yes, I wanted to. I want the Daniel Brightman case. I wanted to come on to that. In, oh, we will in get moment, to that. Actually, actually, I was mm. referring to a different different one. It's one that happened in Canberra, Australia's capital, where there were two dogs who attacked and killed a dog. So obviously, it was a very serious issue. One of the dogs got off on a technicality. Um, the, the police charged the wrong owner, but the other dog um, was in the firing line. But in the end, the Chief Justice of the Australian Capital Territory said, first of all, the Chief Justice was suspicious that it was because the the other dog, uh, the one that was in the firing line was actually the puppy of uh, the child of the other dog. Maybe it was influenced by the other dog. Secondly, the Chief Justice said, well, it's not just the dog's fault, it's the owners for letting the dog out. But thirdly, and this is the important bit, the Chief Justice decided the right solution was one that wasn't available for humans in the same circumstances. Was It was banishment. And that dog was sent away from the Australian Capital Territory as a way of balancing what would otherwise be a dilemma, which was that there were these victims of the dog living in the same street who just would would be scared or upset if that dog was in the same city as them. So it was a compromise to keep the dog alive. With um, Izzy the dog, actually the current owners got in contact when they heard I was writing the book and apparently she is a really really good dog they've never had any Aww. problem with her whatsoever they sent me a picture of her looking very happy it actually made me cry um may not surprise you to hear that I'm an animal lover but um so she has never had any other problems they did say obviously we make sure that the fence is always closed. We're careful when we take her for walks and stuff, but she's been exceptionally well-behaved, which suggests that perhaps the problem was not her. Um, one of the other dogs or whatever. So that actually raises another question. What about rehabilitation of dogs? <laughs> is that possible? Like, do we necessarily have to kill them? Or can we rehabilitate them? I mean, we don't kill dangerous humans. No, um, we might uh, lock we lock them up. We might we separate them from other people. You know, we ensure we try to ensure the safety of the public, um, but we but we we don't kill the person in in most countries or in countries that don't have the death penalty. I'm not sure what the the statistics are and how many do and how many don't, but. Yeah, I think um it might be instructive to compare this case with the these these cases with the Daniel Brightman case. Um because that's that case also raised a number of really interesting legal and, and moral issues. Um Katie, maybe while Jeremy's recovering from his cough, <laughs> you could outline that outline that case for our listeners. Oh, so um Daniel Daniel Brighton ran a zoo and he used to collect all these different animals, lizards and two camels, one of whom was called Alice. We'll hear more of her anon. And um, it was a mobile zoo. He would take it round to um, 
for people to experience animals and so on and so forth. But interestingly and perhaps surprisingly, um, he was convicted by the RSPCA of animal cruelty offences. Now, it's not what you might expect. Apparently, Alice the camel was attacked and mauled by two dogs and um, she was badly lacerated. And um, the question was, um, what happened to the dogs? Well, Jeremy loves keeping people in suspense, so but I will be a bit of a spoiler and say Daniel Brighton is alleged to have um, beaten one of the dogs to death, and the RSPCA ended up um, prosecuting him for animal cruelty. But we look at a whole bunch of different um, different laws there regarding times when animals have been prosecuted for harming others because one of the things he tried to argue with respect to the dogs was that he was exterminating pests. So the dogs were, um, it, it seemed that they didn't have an owner. No one had um, complained about them. And he said, well, I'm actually um, defending another animal, that is um, Alice the camel, but I'm also getting rid of a pest animal. So um, the question was, was this actually a defence to the criminal um, to the criminal um, <clears throat> charges? Um, ultimately, no, but maybe Jeremy can explain why he was... Um, what happened in the end, because he's more of the criminal lawyer than I am. It, it was a peculiar offence he was charged with. Um, there's a, a relatively modern part of, of animal law about animal cruelty uh, that Jeremy Bentham, a uh, leading uh, legal academic, kicked off to some extent in England over a century ago. Uh, and so we now have offences of you're allowed to kill animals or your own animals, but what you aren't allowed to do is be cruel to any animal. And cruelty is obviously a really tricky thing to define, but um, uh, it's clear enough that if he was, uh, what was the, he was described as doing certainly sounded cruel. But the authorities act had to reach into the statute book because it took them several years to work out what had happened. Uh, the dogs had been buried in the property and it was some disgruntled employees who, uh, went to the RSPCA and said, this is what happened a few years ago. And by then it was too late to charge those more minor offences. So they pulled out a major offence, um, which was an offence of being uh, ex exceptionally cruel to an animal. And that's a peculiar offence because it had some weird defences. You could be exceptionally cruel if you were exterminating pests. So he, he ran the argument that he was exterminating pests. This went through several layers of courts in New South Wales. But in the end, the judges said it just didn't fit what he did. Exterminating pests should be about systemic actions where you go through and set a field on fire to get rid of the snakes or something like that. Uh, and it didn't suit beating a dog. So he failed on that, but all was not lost. 
because the courts nevertheless realised that in order to make out this much more serious offence of exceptional cruelty, they had to prove that he actually wanted the animal to suffer. And that's the, that's the bit where they got stuck. They said this needs to be tried again, and we still don't know the outcome of this case because it was possible that although he did was very cruel to the animal, he might have had two motivations which were different to wanting it to suffer. Firstly, he wanted to protect his camel and the other employees from being attacked by the dog. And then eventually, um, after he'd injured the dog a bit and the dog hadn't died and he complained about that, there's every chance he just wanted to put the dog out of its misery. Um, so uh, given that, it wasn't clear that suffering was his goal. So at the end of the day, he's still, as far as I've heard, awaiting uh, some future trial on that very difficult issue, though it seems to me that they're, they're going to struggle to prove that against him. Um, what what kind of penalties will he face if he is found to have been cruel? Oh, well, he was actually, when he was initially convicted, he, he drew a magistrate who was very angry at him uh, and, wasn't, and found everything against him and rejected all the defences uh, and skirted over that issue of intent to suffer. And that magistrate gave him a penalty of four years, uh, which is an enormous penalty by animal cruelty standards. It's the kind of penalty you will get if you um, cause some serious sort of injury to a human. Uh, so this was a very famous case for a while because it seemed like he was going to go to jail for the sort of term you would get for a, for, for a, a serious human crime. Um, but he never served the time um, because he, he went on appeal and got bailed in the meantime. And at least one judge said, this is crazy. No matter what he did, um, you can't punish him with four years in prison. Um, and the judge, the judge seemed to think that, that the, the prison term would be in months, if anything, not in years. So again, that's another reason why um, the, the wait to see what happens in this case is probably going to be one that just peters out because at this point it's, it's probably not going to be worth everyone's while to, to solve the puzzle because he isn't going to get the, that kind of significant penalty. Mm. What what is the usual penalty in Australia? Um, what would have been a more typical sentence? So prison is relatively um, uncommon for cruelty offences, with one exception. If the cruelty to an animal occurs in conjunction with domestic violence, so that's this is a situation where someone is terrorising their partner and uses an, the family pet as a way to get their partner, then that will. Uh, get the kind of sentences that uh, it's usually bundled in with other abuses. So it's the kind of sentences that you get for domestic violence, which can be uh, a year or so in prison for even the the most uh, so even for even for offences that don't cause great injury. Um, but uh, it is, prison's always a possibility for animal cruelty without that context. And I do cover a person who. Um, he was just a terrible dairy farmer who'd bought some terrible dairy farming land in Tasmania and he had a bunch of cows, but the land was steep and difficult and he was out of his depth. And eventually the neighbours complained about him because the cows were obviously just suffering. One of them got caught in a tree and that sort of thing. And he went to jail for a year, um, not because anyone thought he wanted the suffering to happen, but because the, of the sheer quantity of suffering that he caused including um, the fact that most of the cows had to be put down in the end by the authorities in Tasmania. So 
uh, until Daniel Bryson, that was one of the biggest sentences for animal cruelty without any associated human cruelty. Yeah, in the book you talk about a late 19th century case, um, a British case involving cattle as well. And that case um, was instrumental in defining uh, what it what animal cruelty means legally. Um, That's right. Uh, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna just read a a, a very uh, short passage here. It says, um, uh, "So um, animal pain can only be inflicted for an acceptable reason." Um, Hawkins, so this was the judge in the case in, in, in question, ruled that those reasons could extend beyond ones that benefit the animal, such as surgery, to those that benefit humans. He gave breaking horses or castrating male animals as examples of what is acceptable, but drew the line at modifying animals due to fashion, the whim of the individual, or minor economic benefits, such as the avoidance of occasional stock loss which was said to follow from dehorning. Second, there must be no less painful ways to achieve the goal of which harm is the byproduct, a test that dehorning failed. So the, the, um, the, the person being prosecuted obviously was prosecuted for, for cruelty for having dehorned his cattle. Um, a test that dehorning failed, given that other approaches were viable such as removing the tips of horns or breeding hornless cattle. Finally, Hawkins said, even where a desirable and legitimate object is sought to be attained, the magnitude of the operation and the pain caused thereby must not so far outbalance the importance of the end. If it did, it should be clear to any reasonable person that it is preferable the object should be abandoned rather than that disproportionate suffering should be inflicted. This last condition, which the revolting operation of dishorning, quote, also failed, could potentially criminalise many more uses of animals that would otherwise be permitted, depending on what courts decide is clear to any reasonable person. Do you want to talk a little bit uh more about that um, about that particular judgment and the implications there. Sure, that that was something of a test judgment, and it did indeed come up with a definition of cruelty that lasts to this day. But it's incredibly fraught because all of those tests. What's the the purpose you're doing? Could you do it in a nicer way? And at the end of the day, is is it just too much given um, given what you're the horrors of what you're doing, that it doesn't outweigh the benefits you're getting, those tests could apply to a lot of our dealings with animals. I mean, the thing about these cattle is, of course, they were being bred, uh, uh, milked, um, penned in, uh, and eventually killed and eaten. And none of that was regarded as cruel. Um, it was only the dehorning, which was graphically described in the judgments, and they they brought in some stoic farmers who who had seen everything, who nevertheless talked about how revolted they were by the dehorning process and its aftermath, and it did indeed sound horrific. But any animal activist today, and in fact many other people who uh, might not always think about where their food comes from, would probably react with exactly the same horror to the modern processes of raising animals for food. Uh, 
there's every possibility um, that uh, a court could just decide there's, decide that whole parts of this industry are criminal because they're cruel. Um, and now the, the reality, of course, is courts don't buck social pressure that much, although uh, they have their moments. But as well, the various um, legislatures who create the criminal law have been pretty careful when they've drafted these laws to have typically a ban on cruelty, but then a host of exceptions, often referring to things like complying with complex industry standards. And that's the way, uh, instead, these issues are actually dealt with by some uh, body of faceless people somewhere coming up with a a lengthy set of hundreds of rules on what's okay or not okay when it comes to animals. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, as you were, as you in the course of researching and writing this book, um, were there cases that really surprised you in the way they were handled and or in their implications? Um, most definitely, um, Jeremy knows in the um, property law part of the book. I think the thing that surprised me most was the information I found out about the ownership of swans in Britain. So um, to British listeners, you may have heard the saying, the Queen owns all the swans. Okay, that's not quite true. The Queen technically has a right to claim all the unmarked mute swans in the waters of England and Wales. So if she wanted to, she could say any unmarked swan of the mute swan variety is mine. Um, apparently there are other species of swan found in Britain. She can't have them. She can't have Australian black swans. Um, but one of the things I discovered was this whole strange tradition grew up around um, ownership of swans where it became a status symbol. And then the monarch would grant the right to mark swans to nobles. And this apparently involved either carving the beak of the swan or putting a brand upon it. And then um, they were recorded in these giant books called swan-upping books. And these were extremely elaborate. Records were kept of whose swans mated with who else's swans, who got the signets, so on and so forth. Every year an audit of swans occurred called the swan-upping where new swans were marked, everything was recorded in a book, and um, it was incredibly elaborate. There were even fights over who owned what swans. They formed special courts to try and deal with this problem um, called the Courts of Swan Moot. There was a royal swan master who I believe still exists. Um, and at one point, Queen Elizabeth I decided that she was going to claim some unmarked swans at Abbotsbury Swannery, and um, two nobles against whom she claimed them very bravely decided that they were going to resist the Queen. Um, She ends up winning, but it's a very interesting insight into how that was viewed at that time and the kind of, yeah, the strange status symbol 
nature of the swan and how people owned it. Um, so, yeah, the Queen could still do that if she wanted. She, I did check her website. She doesn't want to. She does keep an eye on the swans around Windsor Castle and she's rather fond of them, according to her website. So she checks on those. But other than that, she doesn't want to claim all the swans. But she can also claim any sturgeon. Any sturgeon found in the waters of England and Wales belongs to the Queen. And in fact, a Welsh fisherman caught a sturgeon in the 2000s and did offer it to the Queen, but she declined it. I think probably, <laughs> I, I don't blame <laughs> her. I don't know that I want a sturgeon either. But um, it was just this whole other world of this very complex tradition which had grown up and then I guess it doesn't exist anymore. So all we know is vaguely how the Queen owns the swans. But um, I also found out some very interesting things about ownership of bees, which may not be something people have thought about before, but it's quite difficult. Oh, yeah, that, that, um, that chapter on bees was fascinating. Oh, it's so how you determine whether bees who bees belong to um was a whole was a huge huge issue because <laughs> you can't you can't mark a bee um and most people don't even try but there does seem to be a kind of indo-european tradition because of course with bees the value comes in the bees as a group, as a hive. So in some ways you own the bees en masse. The second thing is that they can harm people, they can sting people. And the third thing is sometimes they swarm, sometimes they just get up and go somewhere else. And in fact, we had some bees swarm onto our letterbox and stay there for two days, which was a bit inconvenient because it meant all the letters were stuck and uh, when we got them out covered in little beeswax um, hexagons. But um, the thing was you could still claim they were your bees as long as you ran and kept the bees in sight. And this seems to be the case kind of across uh, Europe. But um, medieval Ireland had a particularly interesting take upon bees they decided to treat bees like cattle and decide that if bees went onto neighbouring land to forage for pollen, they were trespassing bees and the owner of the bees had to pay honey to their neighbour for their bees' use of the land. But then how do you prove it's their bee? Well, <laughs> as far as they can work out, this is the strange part, um, they sprinkled flour on the bee <laughs> and followed it back to the hive. And I'm just imagining these people sprinkling flour on bees. Um, actually, Aristotle mentions um, flour being sprinkled on bees as well. So it obviously was a thing, but I'm just imagining someone following a bee as it goes from flower to flower and uh, trying to work out which hive it belongs to. But that was, that was also really, really interesting and something I hadn't thought about before. So German law to this very day, it has one law with regard to ownership of animals, 
But then in the BGB, it actually has several specific laws relating to the ownership of bees. That's the that's the Bund, Bundesgesetzbuch, which is the German book of German law. Yes, yes, um, thank you. I, did, yeah. I wasn't game to try and pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> I did do Middle English, so everything starts turning out like Middle English if I try German. Anyway, um, yes, so they have several laws about what happens if your bees swarm onto someone else's land? Can you break into someone else's hive and get them? Yes, but you have to pay for any damage to the hive and so on and so forth. But um, it just struck me as interesting because bees are kind of both many and single and they are in some ways uncontrollable. So, again, the law can't decide how to categorise them. You can't say to a bee, no, don't go there. Well, another thing you can't say, no, don't go there, is cats, right? How do you own something which is not readily controllable? Um, And the answer is it's sometimes a little difficult um, to show. We actually had a a case uh, when I was living in Argentina um, where – so the the neighbor's tomcat uh we had uh, our our neighbors our neighbors and we and our neighbors had a connecting roof so i was living in a shared house as a as a tenant there and um the house had a roof terrace that was basically adjoining another roof terrace it just had a little kind of hedge in between the two terraces um a little kind of lat- lattice work fence it was actually um, but the terraces weren't in any way blocked off from each other. It was one big roof across over the building, and one of the flats was the front flat, and the other one was the back rear flat. We were in the rear flat, and um, the um, the neighbor's tomcat would come across into our roof, and then from the roof um, go down the stairs because uh, that. The entrance to the roof was usually open during the day, especially in the summer, because we spent a lot of time out in the roof. And he would just dart across the roof, go down the stairs and into the, um, into our kitchen where he liked to pee everywhere. Oh no. Um, so he would spray the kitchen as if it were his territory. Oh no. And, uh, for a while we were all on tomcat duty. So he had to sit there on the roof holding I would be sitting reading or talking to people or something, holding a, um, a water spray in my hand. Because <laughs> um, we were attempting aversion therapy on the Tomcat. So when he appeared on our side of the roof, we would spray him with water. But of course, you can't, uh, unless you employ somebody just to be there like a, a cat watch person 24 hours a day to spray. Um, he would just come down onto the roof. And of course, he would come also in through. Um, we had a little kind of, um, one of the, one of the bedrooms had a, an, a, a window adjoining the roof. And he would, if that window was open, he would, uh, come in through that window through tiny little cracks that no human could get in through. Um, and of course, his favorite thing was to dart down to the kitchen as quickly as possible and pee everywhere. <laughs> And, um, so I have to um, 
I have to say, when my father first read this book, he immediately rang me and he said, I have a problem with a neighbour's cat. I don't know to whom it belongs, but that cat keeps maliciously um, doing its business in the side garden where my orchids are. And he said, can I get an injunction upon the cat? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I've never met a cat yet who listens to human laws. (laughs) Cats follow their own rules. But um, Yes, there was... There was some muttering on the part of my, the owner of the house, where the flat where I was staying, um, as to whether she could do something legally about this tomcat. Um, and I, I don't know whether anything came of that, but I was witness to what I found a kind of unintentionally hilarious conversation between her and the neighbor, in which she was telling the neighbor to keep her cat under control. Um, how do you keep a cat under, <laughs> under control? <laughs> the CIA. Stop your cat from crossing over into our side of the roof. <laughs> yeah. oh, Jeremy's got a good story about this. The, the CIA tried to control some cats once because... Um, oh, the, yes, that was a hilarious story in your book. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Story. I mean, the, the thing about um, animals is this, they live with humans and they wander around. Uh, and while dogs are the most ubiquitous animals living with humans, dogs are rarely unaccompanied. Um, so uh, the CIA were on the search for another animal that no one would be concerned by wandering near them in a park or something and wouldn't um, need to have a human with them. Uh, and so they settled on a cat and they tried to wire up cats for sound. Uh, and this was the 60s, so these weren't the most miniature um, recording devices, unfortunately. Uh, so I don't think the cats, uh, this wasn't great for the cats what they wired up, um, but it, it served their purpose because the cat could then go and wander over and listen in on conversations and the people would, wouldn't care less that the cat was there. Of course, the problem is the reason people don't care where cats are is because cats do whatever they want. They don't do things at the behest of humans. Uh, and so that was the problem the CIA ran into was how did they get the cat to go over where they wanted to go? Being the CIA uh, in the 60s, they decided that sticking wires into the cat's head might somehow help in controlling the cat. Uh, and although there are a few different reports of this, I mean, this definitely happened. There are partially declassified documents describing Project Acoustic <laughs> Kitty, uh, but, uh, but it's harder Isn't to work out. what it was actually called. Project yes. Acoustic Kitty. That's right, yeah. Um, so, so there's actually documents that back this up, but then there are anecdotal claims about how it all ended, and the most graphic of those was that they tried to control the cat and the cat just basically um, sprinted at the first opportunity and got run over, which um, is a sad Aww. ending but probably probably less sad than the life of the cat was otherwise going to leave with these wires and a tape recorder stuck to it. Um so yeah, it was a. It, it, the, the, the documents say that the CIA had to abandon their project, uh, although it's redacted exactly why they did so. Um, but it, one thing I know <laughs> it's redacted. <laughs> it's, it's a very amusing document to read. Um, just mentions cats every now and then. Everything else is blacked out. Um, yeah, so it's something redacted. <laughs> Cat redacted. <laughs> but but I only you mentioned Buenos Aires because um there's a we're we've got keeping an eye on an ongoing case from Buenos Aires, uh which involves another animal that 
can be unaccompanied and has a built-in tape recorder, and that's a parrot. Um, so there are just these occasional cases. None of them make it to the law reports. They're always just in newspaper articles. Uh, but where um, a parrot has supposedly been at the scene of a crime and has caught some words, or so the um, police think, that are revealing about the crime. And so the case in Buenos Aires, um, there was a, a, a situation where there was suspected violence inside a house, but it wasn't quite clear what had happened. And a police officer was guarding the house, the scene of the crime, while while other officers were doing things and heard ran inside when he heard a woman screaming, except it wasn't a woman screaming. It was a parrot mimicking a woman screaming and eventually saying in Spanish things that the police regarded as proving that a crime had happened, things like, no, please let me go, or why did you beat me? Um, and the reports from Buenos Aires say that this is now part of the police brief in a trial of the people they think were responsible for the abuse in that house. Um, there's a few other stories like this floating around. Some of them are less about what happened, but rather who done it. So there's a US case where a parrot um, was heard to cry out, uh, having been at the scene of a, a murder, Richard, no, no, no. And um, the person who was accused of the murder, his name wasn't Richard, so he wanted to um, call evidence about the parrot. But very frustratingly, the judge just said, uh, objection sustained, and the parrot never got to speak, or indeed uh, no one got to hear what the parrot said. Um, I don't know why the judge sustained the objection. I suspect, though, it's because of evidence laws hearsay rule, which says that people have to speak on oath. Uh, they can't, you can't learn what they said out of court, uh, except in some circumstances. The problem isn't the parrot not speaking on, on oath. The hearsay rule, except in South Africa, doesn't cover uh, non-human animals. Um, rather, it's whoever said those words that the parrot recounted. Richard, no, no, no. That person wasn't speaking on oath. I think that's the objection. But unfortunately, because these cases never proceed far so far. We, we've never found out exactly what the problem was in that case. So talking about the parrot, what are some of the most surprising or, or strange um, or absurd cases that you've come across in the course of your research? Um, one of the things we were thinking about was the cases involving, oh, well, for one thing, I have some advice for listeners before I move on to monkeys. Oh, yes, go ahead. Never, ever, ever pat a zebra, ever. <laughs> never, ever. Something I hadn't thought about was that zebras developed in Africa where lions are the apex predators and they have to be ready for anything. And in fact, they are. So one of the cases I found was a case where this man made the mistake of thinking a zebra was simply a stripy horse and the zebra bit his hand off. So don't pat a zebra. That's my life advice for today. Um, not that I'm very important. Not that we're likely to come across zebras, but just in case anyone ever does. That's all right. So um, another thing we were thinking about was the cases we have involving monkeys. Well, another thing I would note is that um, chimpanzees are not cuddly. Don't cuddle them. Um, they're actually quite aggressive too. But um, 
one of the some of the listeners may remember the case of the IKEA monkey. So some years back, um, shoppers in Toronto were somewhat surprised in December in Toronto when they suddenly saw a monkey in a fur coat wandering around um, IKEA. And they took photos of it and it became known on social media as my daughter thinks I'm cool. She said, what? You have a picture of the Ikea monkey? You're cool. Did you know that monkey's in memes? No, I didn't. But the monkey did. It was a Japanese snow macaque. It did become the subject of a legal case because it turns out that the monkey was owned by a lawyer and the monkey had escaped. The monkey was picked up by Toronto Animal Services and then there was a fight over who owned it. Um, Among other things, the lawyer tried to argue that the monkey was like her child and so on and so forth. But um, Justice Valley said, no, the monkey is, it's not human. Um, He, his name was Darwin, he is not human, he is property and I have to rule according to the rules of property. And the rules with regard to owning wild animals are you can temporarily own wild animals while they're in your control or while you've tamed them or whatever, but they have to have a tendency to return. And this monkey showed no tendency whatsoever to return to this woman, and therefore she had lost ownership in him. So um, Darwin the monkey ended up going to Storybook Farm. It's a bit of a sad story because he couldn't be repatriated to somewhere where there are other Japanese snow macaques. But he did end up in a cage next next to some olive baboons. And it's very unusual for monkeys of different species to make friends. These monkeys made friends with him and he ended up moving in with them. So he did have a happy life in the end. But um, it's just, yeah, I would say another thing is don't own wild animals. Don't own chimpanzees. Don't own zebras. Don't own lions. It's just not not particularly fair. They are, in fact, wild. This monkey, apparently, one of the reasons they decided the monkey was wild was because it bit people and it peed everywhere. It had to wear um, a nappy or diaper in North American um, parlance. And, um, yeah, but apparently this woman had a penchant for... Um, collecting strange animals. Um, And after Toronto said you can't keep doing that, she ended up moving somewhere else. But it just shows you people do some odd things. But Jeremy has a tale about a different macaque. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. So, yeah, though this is another macaque on the other side of the world. And like Katie, I come to it via another animal. So at the end of the book, we, we kind of review what we've done. And one thing is... Of course, a lot of the the legal system is concerned with a relatively small set of animals, uh, mostly mammals, uh, occasionally bees. Um, but uh, we talk a bit at the end of the book about octopuses. And one reason we do that is because while we were writing the book, uh, there was a, 
a major photography competition, which is all about ocean photography. And it's apparently one of the most, um, uh, one of the highest prize money photography competitions in the world. And the winner uh, in 2020 uh, was this spectacular photo called The Day of the Tentacle. And in the foreground of the photo, there's a really wonderful looking octopus with, with beautiful tentacles and water flowing around. And in the background, there's an adult and a child just at the edge of the photo. And the judges said they were so impressed with the framing of the photo and they assumed that the child and the child's mother were there and the photographer had caught the octopus together with the child and the child's mother. But they got it wrong. Um, the It wasn't the child's mother who was in the photo, it was the child's father who was the entrant who they'd awarded the prize to, but he didn't take the photo. The photographer was at the front in the foreground of the photo. It was the octopus, uh, which had manipulated the camera and taken this photo. At least that's the story we're told. But it certainly looks quite that way in the photo. So that caught our interest um, in part because you So what happened? The camera, uh, he gave the camera to the octopus? or His story is the the octopus, it it wasn't quite gay. The octopus took the camera and played with it. Um, but uh, it's hard. So they were walking along, and the octopus just—they—they uh, ju- they were just walking past an octopus, and it reached out tentacles and grabbed the camera. I think or- it was a little more directed than that. They saw the octopus in the water, and he was—he was doing his best to try and get a photo, and then found himself without the camera briefly, and then ah, ended right, up with this photo. I mean, you never quite know the reality of these claims. All I can definitely say is this is a spectacular photo. And if he is to be believed, there's a really interesting, albeit very minor and never litigated legal question about who should have got the prize. Um, should it have been him? He wasn't the photographer. Should it be the octopus, um, which, of course, would be dead by now? They don't live very long. Um, or should it have been one of the other entrants who put in $10, $10 to enter this competition and yet then lost to whatever this photo was? Um but the reason, of course, that caught our mind is because there'd been a case a few years earlier that, that did get a lot of attention about a macaque that at least initially was thought to have taken a selfie. And it's, again, a spectacular picture because the macaque is seemingly smiling for the camera and beautifully posed as if it was a human selfie. And so it became a, a wildly successful set of images. There, there was more than one. Um, and uh, in the end, the man whose camera it was, and he initially said that it, just like the octopus, the, the monkey had taken the camera and taken the photo itself. Um, but in the end, he, he changed his story and said, actually, no, I set it up. And I, I, I basically created a scenario where, where Naruto, this macaque, would take a series of photos without realizing it. So there's a bit of a dispute about who the real photographer was. What's interesting about Naruto, though, is that Naruto, that's the first of two really interesting things Naruto did. Naruto took this photo, perhaps, but secondly, Naruto sued that man in uh, the California court system for breach of Naruto's copyright in the photo. And that's a really interesting thing for an animal to do, a (laughs) a non-human animal. Um, And so there is a case uh, where Naruto is the plaintiff and the photographer uh, is the defendant. And one of the issues in the case is this is a sort of leading end of animal law, an attempt to take human laws that are in general terms and don't specifically refer to humans, so, you know, competitions that refer to photographers or US copyright statutes that refer to the creator of a work 
um, or the owner of a work and so and to say well that could cover animals as well if the animal manages to be the creator or the taker of a photograph or something like that so that's what the case was designed to litigate but of course the immediate question is how on earth was Naruto managing to bring this action Naruto of course didn't know what a camera was didn't know what a court was didn't know what California was as near as anyone could tell and the answer, of course, is that um, someone else was bringing the litigation. In this case, it was an animal rights group, um, the uh, Peter uh, for the ethical, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, um, and they were taking advantage of the ability of anyone to say, "I need to bring an action on behalf of someone else who isn't capable of bringing an action." For so, for example, if a baby needs to bring an action, or someone who's in a coma or is um, uh, mentally unwell, someone else can bring the action on their behalf. So that's how it was being done. Um, the US courts had said this was possible to do with animals. There'd been an earlier case where uh, a similar action had been brought on behalf of all the cetaceans, the, the dolphins and whales, uh, in off the coast of California. They were suing over the, the use of sonar by the military. So the courts had said this was possible, but they rejected PETA, uh, the, the animal rights group, on the basis that they didn't believe that Peter was acting on behalf of the animal. In fact, they didn't think any human could act on behalf of an animal because humans can't understand what animals want. They asked, for example, how do we know that Naruto wants to claim copyright in this photo? How do we know that Naruto isn't one of those uh, people who thinks that everyone should be able to own these things and it should be free domain? Um, and, of course, that's all a bit um, sardonic but the reality is what they suspected and this is almost certainly the case is that peter was just using naruto to push one of their own bandwagons was which was a pro uh animal rights bandwagon so the courts threw the case out um told told said that peter can't represent naruto and there was no one left at that point to represent naruto they also said in passing that uh they didn't think that non-human animals could own copyright under US law. It's not resolved for other jurisdictions. And they finally added that they were actually suspicious about even the idea of an animal being, even if you get, get all over the other hurdles, being a plaintiff in a court. So that ended up going very badly. I don't know if it went badly for Naruto, but it went badly for Peter. Nevertheless, there are still attempts to litigate uh, in ways that help animals using human laws. So there's a, a case ongoing in New York State uh, where there's the writ of habeas corpus, uh, produce the body, which is used if someone has been imprisoned unlawfully and anyone else can bring an action uh, if, if they believe someone has been imprisoned unlawfully, demanding that the court inquire and find out if, if the person is being detained and on what basis. And in this case, another human, uh, animal rights group, the Non-Human Rights Project, was brought that action on behalf of an elephant in the Bronx Zoo, an elephant named Happy, uh, who they argued wasn't happy and would be happier elsewhere. And we're, we're all currently awaiting a judgment from the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, these cases often don't succeed, but this case has gone a long way um, about whether habeas corpus is available in a limited way, not to free an elephant, but to improve the circumstances of an elephant that's being confined in a zoo. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the Bronx Zoo, which has the elephant, insists that actually Happy is happy and is happiest in the zoo um, and that uh, no one's suggesting that this is an evil zoo or anything like that. Um, the fight is about higher principles than that. Thanks. Um, 
A question for both of you, just to sort of wind things up, um, is how do you um, how do you see animal law developing in the future, and um, are there legal provisions that you think should be in place that are not, or um, are there laws in place that you feel uh, really should be altered, or hope would be altered? In terms of how we see law changing, I think one of the big changes has been um, a rise in provisions for animal sentience. So one of the things we detail is how in a variety of jurisdictions across Europe and um, in New Zealand and um, at least one territory of Australia, there have been provisions saying animals are not just property, they are sentient and they have, um, I guess, a an existence separate from humans. Of course, there are many, many, many exceptions to this. It actually relates back to the... Um, dehorning case that Jeremy was talking about earlier. So, you know, animals are sentient, yet we can still eat them. Animals are sentient, yet we can still um, do various things to them, like put them down or um, whatever. But I do think that might result in a bit of a change, at least in some areas, perhaps most obviously in um, disputes over um, animals upon the breakdown of a relationship. So um, at least in Australian courts until now, animals have been treated as property um, and the difficulty there is, well, it's kind of like Buddy and King Solomon. You can't just divide up a dog or a cat or whatever. So um, it might lead, I hope, to some kind of change where the importance of companion animals to people will be recognised. So that's one shift I think I see. Jeremy, what do you think you see? Well, I think what's interesting about the sentience thing, and that's really the leading edge at the moment, is how it makes us think about um, not just animals but ourselves. What 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 rules do we think have to apply to anything like us? Um, and so you have human rights law, which are meant to be universal and apply to all humans by virtue of their human dignity. Um, but the thing is, animals can have dignity. Perhaps not all of them, but some sure do. Um, and so you, it's a way of thinking about both uh, human animals and non-human animals. Um, the particular the, why we end with octopuses is because they're at a very interesting leading edge here. Um, until uh, recent times, octopuses were regarded as dangerous and tasty, um, uh, and were were you know there were stories that they would pull down ch- ships and attack people. People would hunt them, and they were delicacies. Uh, who would be eaten in very specific ways, including uh, cutting their tentacles off, and the tentacles would still move. But the more visible all that became, the more videos spread, um, the more people realised actually octopuses were quite special. Um, And they're really interesting because uh, mammals, of course, are quite closely related to us. 
Octopuses aren't remotely related to us. We share a common ancestor with some tiny worm from half a billion years ago. And yet octopuses show lots of signs of what we would call intelligence. Uh, It's very hard to deny that they are at very least whatever we mean by sentient. And so the leading edge has been to start including them in those cruelty statutes. The old cruelty statutes used to only cover mammals, but now they're spreading and covering um, some reptiles and some crustaceans, uh, including octopuses. Um, and uh, so that's, a, that's, that's where the spread comes from, is this gradual realisation that some animals have similarities to us. Um, uh, there are movements to try and have official bills of rights for animals and the like. Uh, I'm a little bit cynical when I sometimes hear, as Casey described, uh, animals are declared sentient. Often that's just a one-liner in a statute that it's not clear it has any effect. Um, but what does have effect is new bans on experimentation or in the UK, the most recent change is um, a parliamentary committee whose job is to check the effect of any new legislation on sentient animals. Um, I actually advise a parliamentary committee here in Victoria uh, on the effect of any new legislation on humans, but our human rights charter specifically limits itself to human beings. And uh, I think the UK is really at a cutting edge here. There's Whatever you might think about the line between humans and other animals, it surely makes sense at this point that just as parliaments have to think very hard about the effect of their laws on people, they should also be thinking about the effect of any laws on at least sentient animals. So I find that the most interesting and very recent development in the law. Thank you very much. Thank you both of you so much for joining me. And uh, we will put links to your um, blog and uh, your work and also to where uh, listeners can get hold of the book. All of that will be in the show notes. Um, it's been a real pleasure. It's been absolutely delightful. Thanks so much for having us talk to you today, Iona. Lovely to speak to you in person, as it were. Thanks, Iona. I mean, as Katie was saying, we we both found this book to be exactly what we were hoping for from academic life. But um, since it's been published, we've been doing quite a few chats like this. And this is also the kind of life we both enjoy is talking about these issues. So thanks. Thanks for having us on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, Share it widely, leave a review on your favourite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.